we're in the book of Acts. We've been looking at the Gospels. Last week we were looking at the Gospel of Luke. The Gospels give us four different accounts of the same life. They give us the life of Christ. And they're all writing for a different reason, to emphasize something different. Matthew is emphasizing what? Jesus is the king. He's the long-awaited king that was promised in the Old Testament. And he has come. He, he fills that role. He meets all the qualifications to be the king of Israel. Mark is focusing on Jesus as what? Yes, he is a servant. Luke is focusing on him as a... Anybody know? A man. And everyone should know this one. John is focusing on Jesus as God. Acts is not necessarily focusing on the life of Christ. It's focusing on the early history of the church. Luke goes from giving us the life of Christ to giving us an early history of what happened after Christ left. Uh, Donald Guthrie said, It is the only extant historical account of the primitive Christian period outside the epistles from a Christian point of view. Oh, you... Yeah, that's not on the slide, though. It's the only early historical account we have of the Christian church from a Christian perspective. Everything else said about the church and the early church in the first century, we get from secular writers who were not Christians. Luke is the only one who provides us a history from a Christian perspective. And when you read through the book of Acts, what you find is that he views his historical account as not being random events that just kind of occur on their own. He views the early church as being directed and guided by God. All of the events that happen in the book of Acts Luke portrays them as having occurred because God brought them about and that God is controlling the church and moving the church through history. And Luke records those events. Luke actually provides us, he's our primary source if we want to know anything about that time period. The Apostolic Age, or right after the Apostolic Age, he's our primary source. There's no other source that we can go to to learn what was happening. You might say that Acts provides a connecting link. Acts connects the Gospels with the Epistles. Acts bridges that gap. One writer said, speaking of the book of Acts, it is one of the most important and influential books of all time. This is a vital book that you need to know, that you need to understand. You need to understand it because I'm assuming all of you want to be students of the Bible. All of you strive to be students of the Bible. How do you understand the epistles outside of the book of Acts? Because you have to begin your study of the epistles with this book. What are some ways that these are connected? If you're studying the book of Romans, where in the book of Acts should you go? Anybody know? Pentecost. Just because they were there for Rome. Okay, so there were some Romans at Pentecost. 
Is there a place in the book of Acts that describes anything about Rome? The, the end. Yeah, Paul goes to Rome in Acts 28. Acts 28, 14 through 31 would be a great portion to read and to study if you want to study the book of Romans. What about 1 and 2 Corinthians? Anyone go to the church at Corinth? I'm testing Bible knowledge today. I don't know. <laughs> Acts 18, 1 through 18. Describes Paul going to the church at Corinth. The church in Galatia, Acts 13 through 14. Would be helpful. Philippians, what happened in Philippi in the book of Acts? The Philippian jailer, when Paul goes to Macedonia. Uh, Acts 16, 6 through 40. First Thessalonians. Anybody remember anything that happened in Thessalonica? Nobody remembers. If you want to go look at it, Acts 17, 1 through 7. It's a short little passage. First Timothy. You can go to Acts 19 or Acts 20. There are two big passages there that would be relevant to the book of 1 Timothy. Titus, Acts 27, 1 through 13. If you want to study the Bible, especially the New Testament, the book of Acts is where you go to get a lot of the background information on when and where these events were occurring and what was going on in that area. Okay, well, let's talk about the book itself. Um, what's the proper title for this book? Acts of the Apostles? Acts of the Apostles? If you go into the early manuscripts, all the manuscripts have a combination or one title or a combination of that title. All of them have Acts or Acts with some other information added to it. Um, for example, we'll, we'll test your Greek today. This is Codex Sinaiticus from the 4th century. Anybody can see the superscript up at the top? How about now? <laughs> well, that helps, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It took me some time to really look at it, too. It's there. Um, I'm going to do a little overlay here. It's praxis. You've heard of orthodoxy? Orthodoxy is right doctrine. This is praxis from which we get orthopraxy. Orthopraxy talks about your practice or your acts, how you behave, what you do. This book was titled Praxis. This is the book of Acts from about the 300s. Here's another one. We looked at the same one last week. And again, three guesses on where they found it. This is Vaticanus. Again, it dates back to the 4th century. And if you go to the top, this one's a little bit easier to read. Praxis Apostolon. Anybody know what that says? Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles. Dating back to the 3rd century. You can go into the 5th century. You find something similar. This is um, Codex D, also known as Codex Beze. Um, I'll just note here. 
The Center for New Testament, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, they have a website. If you just want to be a nerd this afternoon, some of you will. You can go online. <laughs> Some people are pointing. Um, you can go online and you can actually pull up these manuscripts for free. And they have high resolution digital photographs of all the early manuscripts, or most of them. That's where I got this screenshot. This is Codex Beze from the 5th century, the 400s. Notice the superscript. Praxis Apostolum. The universal testimony of the early manuscripts is that this is the book of Acts. Sometimes it's called the Acts of the Apostles. There's even one early witness that has it as the Acts of the, Ho uh, the Holy Apostles. You don't find it with any other superscript other than Acts or Acts of the Apostles or some form of that. Even the early church, when you look at the early church writers and they want to cite this book, Irenaeus from the 2nd century said, True testimony of the Acts and the teachings of the Apostles. He referred to it as Discourses and Acts of the Apostles. Uh, the Muratorian Canon, who has a really good memory from several weeks ago? The Muratorian Canon, anybody remember what that is? We talked about it when we talked about textual criticism. Huh? I'm going to claim I wouldn't hear the Miratorian Canon was about 170. It was one of the first codexes that we have, and it has just about all of the books of the New Testament. It's how we know what the early church believed about the New Testament. The Miratorian Canon lists this as the acts of all the apostles. Now, why did they include the word all? Likely because they were trying to do away with some of the spurious books that were showing up. There were people writing apocalyptic gospels, you know, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Barnabas, and these others that weren't genuine. And so he likely wrote all the apostles just to try to exclude some of those books. And this title of the Acts wasn't uncommon during that day. They use it a lot. Anybody know of any historical works that include this word Acts? It was used for people of influence, people of prominence. And they would write a book and they would call it the Acts of so-and-so. The Acts of Hannibal. The Acts of Alexander. This was a way to, it's kind of like a biography in some cases, to magnify the works and the deeds of a person's life. But Heber points out a really good thing. The Acts of the Apostles isn't technically accurate. Why isn't it technically accurate? Well, go to Acts 1, verse 13. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and uh, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. There is one list of all the apostles. But that's one of the only times that all of them are named. The rest of the time they're referred to, they're not referred to by name, they're just referred to as a group. Acts 1, verse 2, 
The Holy Spirit had given orders to the apostles, Acts 1, verse 26, and they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, and I'm not going to go through, there's a whole long list. 237, 242, 243, 433, 435, 436. They're just described as the apostles. They're not named individually throughout the book. Now, I'll have you note, the very last reference to the apostles, do you know where it is? It's in Acts 16. After Acts 16, they're not mentioned anymore. You have a mention of Paul. And I'm not even sure that Peter is mentioned after that point. But after Acts 16, there's no mention of the apostles again. And only three of the original twelve are named in the remainder of the story. So when it says the Acts of the Apostles, not technically correct. Peter is actually prominent in the first half of the book. From Acts 1 to Acts 15, Peter is mentioned 57 times. The last mention of him is in Acts 15, verse 7. That's at the Jerusalem Council. You know who's prominent in the rest of the book? Paul. From Acts 13 to Acts 28. Anybody want to render a guess on how many times he mentions Paul? 42. Okay, you're a little low. <laughs> 100, wow. You might want to sit on the front row. <laughs> it's 135 times. Um, this was Luke's friend. I just want to show you a couple of these. Acts 13, verse 9. First mention of Paul, as far as his missionary work is concerned. It's not actually his first mention, because he's mentioned earlier. But first mention after uh, Peter disappears. But Saul, who is known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. Acts 13, 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. Acts 13, verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them uh, the next Sabbath. Like I said, there's 135 of these. I was going to go through more, but that's just going to bore you out of your mind. Great. Yes. So um, I was just noticing, you know, in, in, um, in chapter one that, you know, since Judas was out, they drew lots and they lot fell to Matthias, so they got mm -hmm. their twelve. Um, and then you said a lot of them had passed by that time. That Paul came in. Was he ever, you know, officially called an apostle or had to be voted in or anything like that? Um, he wasn't. <clears throat> he wasn't voted in. Uh, he was appointed by Christ. And when you go into like Corinthians and the other books of the epistles, what you find is that he meets the qualifications. Right. And then he affirms himself as being an apostle. 
2 uh, Corinthians 12, he says, I came to you with all the signs of a true apostle. Um, but I don't know of anywhere where it says he was voted as an apostle. I know the church recognized him when uh, he goes to Jerusalem for the first time. Uh, he has his vision with Christ. He goes in the wilderness for a couple of years, and then he comes back and goes to Jerusalem, and he presents himself to the other apostles and is examined by the other apostles. And then he is sent out uh, by them. Does that answer the question? Yeah. And then Luke also provides a good portion of um, their teaching and their thoughts. So he's not just doing their acts. Multiple times throughout the book of Luke, he gives their sermons. He gives their all of their teaching. This book has also been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Why do you think it would be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit? It's an obvious one. Because one of his big emphasis is on the work of the Holy Spirit. We learn a ton about the Holy Spirit by looking at the books, the book of Acts. He's mentioned more than 50 times throughout the book. He mentions the Holy Spirit more than any other New Testament writer. If you want to learn about the Holy Spirit, this is a great place to go. What are some things that we can learn about the Holy Spirit um, by looking at the books of Acts. Acts 5, we learn that the Holy Spirit is a person. In Acts 5, we see some things that happen here that cannot happen to objects. Or they don't happen to objects. Acts 5, you know the story. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They sold some land because they wanted to be like everybody else and give. And so they sold some land, and they kept back a portion for themselves, and then they told the church, we've given everything we got from this purchase. Acts 5, verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? You don't lie to objects. You don't lie to a wall. You don't lie to an impersonal force. You can only lie to a person. This means he has to be a person. Chapter 5, verse 9, Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Holy Spirit, or put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Literally, to be tempted. To test Him. Again, you cannot test an impersonal force. If He is being tested, He must be a person. Acts 7, verse 51, You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. The Holy Spirit is being resisted. That's the idea of resisting as a person would resist another, unless you would resist an authority. These are indicators that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He's not an object. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's a he. It's a person. Acts also gives us his works, what he does. Go back to Acts chapter 1. I'm going to take you through some of these. 
And if you guys have questions or comments, stop me, please. Acts 1, verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The Holy Spirit baptizes believers. In Acts 2, verse 4, we find out that the Holy Spirit not only baptizes believers, but He fills them. Verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. I'm going to get some of you guys to read, but... Uh, let's see. Also notice the Holy Spirit is what causes you to speak in tongues. Same verse. Um, I lost my spot. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Mike, would you go to uh, Acts 5, verse 32? Kathy, would you do Acts 8, verse 39? Carl, would you go to Acts 9, verse 31? Jessica, would you do uh, to, to Acts 13, verse 2? Michael, would you do Acts 15, 28? Percy, would you do Acts 16, 6, and 7? Acts 16, 6, and 7. Ma'am, um, would you do uh, Acts 20, verse 28? And sir, would you do Acts 28, 25? Oh, we have a lot of mics. <laughs> Acts 20, uh, 28, 25. And these are just the works of the Holy Spirit. And it'll be a lot more interesting if you guys read, and I don't read every single one to you. So um, where did we finish here? Acts 2, 4, Acts 5, 32. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. What are they witnesses to? They are witnesses to the death and the resurrection of Christ. They can testify about the death and the resurrection of Christ. And there it says the Holy Spirit is a witness with us. Uh, Acts 8, verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. The Spirit took Philip, snatched him away, and carried him to another place. Acts 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judah and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit is multiplied. The Holy Spirit comforts believers. Acts 13, verse 2. Barnabas, I think that's what we were talking about a minute ago. Barnabas and Saul were commissioned and set into service by who? The Holy Spirit. God commissioned them. Uh, Acts 15, verse 28. Did I get the right verse there? Doesn't sound right. Seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. 
Okay, yeah, that is the right. Yes. Um, yeah. That's saying he guided their deliberations. Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council. What was the big question of the Jerusalem Council? Do Gentiles need to be circumcised? Do they need to become Jews first? And that was the debate. And the apostles and the elders meet together and they debate this. They discuss it. Acts 15, 28, they write their letter to the Gentile churches and they attribute the Holy Spirit as guiding them to their conclusion. He doesn't, he guided them. Uh, Acts 16, 6 and 7. He not only directed the apostles and the elders, but he also directs other ministries. And he guided people to where he wanted them to go to do ministry and do the ministry he wanted them to conduct. Uh, Acts 20, verse 28. the Spirit of God who appoints pastors and elders. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this last one, uh, Acts 28-25. Who wrote the Old Testament? The Holy Spirit. He inspired the Old Testament. You want to learn about the Holy Spirit? Spend some time studying the book of Acts. If you want to know why we believe what we believe about the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts is a great place to go. The book of Acts is also called the book of firsts. The book of firsts. You get the first of a lot of things in the book of Acts. The first church officers are elected. Acts 1, 23 and 26. The very first sermon in the early church was preached in the book of Acts. Who preached that sermon? Mike, who preached that sermon? Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Acts 3, 1 through 11, you get the very first miracle of the early church. Peter and John go and heal a lame beggar. Acts 4. 1 through 4, you get the very first persecution of the church. Peter and John are then arrested for the high crime of healing somebody. Acts 5, we looked at this a minute ago. The story of Ananias and Sapphira is the first time the Holy Spirit disciplined, very publicly disciplined believers in the church. Acts 6, you get the very first deacons. These are proto-deacons. They're not called deacons here. Um, Go over to Acts 6. This might be useful to help to look at. They have a problem, and the problem is they have widows, Hellenistic widows. These are Greek widows 
who need to be cared for. And nobody is caring for them, and they come to the early, they come to the church and they say, look, you guys are supposed to be caring for us, we're widows, and nobody's doing this. Verse 2, so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. How unloving. <laughs> look, the apostles are saying, look, this is an important task that needs to be done, but it's not the task that we should be focusing on. This is a task someone else should be doing. The apostles should be focusing on prayer and the Word of God. And he says, verse 3, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Find some men who are demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, who have wisdom, and have them oversee the care of the Hellenistic widows so that the apostles can focus on what they should be doing. Verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. I want you to notice that one of the first deacons is a man named Stephen. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. That's a good question. I'm going to have to give you Mike's answer on that one. I'm not sure why there's so many of them. And we're not even told how many there are. But you're, that's a good point because there are seven men assigned to taking care of them. Well, I've got a different question. Why seven? And does that present an example of what churches should have today at a minimum? No, I wouldn't say that's a standard in the sense of, well, they had seven, therefore you have seven. I think Carl's on to something there that the seven is there. That's what they need. Right, um, a church that has thirty people in it probably doesesn't need seven deacons. I got, I got the example. Though. What's the, that? The, the husband's dying. Okay, that could be one. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. They are widows, so the husband died. I think his question gets to how is it that so many of them have lost their husbands? Um, maybe they were members of the military and they died that way. Maybe there was disease. I don't actually have an answer as to why there are so many. What city is this in? I think this is in Jerusalem. Okay. But these are Greeks, Greek widows. Stephen here is described as being full of grace and of power, and he's performing signs and wonders. Verse 9 of Acts 6. He's in the synagogue, and he begins arguing with the people in the synagogue. Verse 10. He was obviously arguing really well. He's a good debater, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they do what every good debater does. They go and get some false witnesses because they want to win the argument, and they bring false witnesses to accuse him. Verses 11 through 14. 
Verse 15, they take him before the Jewish council to try him. And in Acts 7, verses 2 through 53, we get the sermon of Stephen. It's the first sermon by a layperson, by a person who is not an apostle. And Stephen gives this magnificent sermon, at the end of which everybody is just astonished and says, wow, what a godly man, and they let him go. Okay, no, that's not what they did, no. No, he finishes his sermon. Uh, I lost my spot again. Okay, uh, chapter 7, verse 54. Now, when they heard this, heard the sermon, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. What stands out to you about that? Anything in particular stands out to you? He, he didn't want the, that sin to be held against them. Yeah, so in the midst of getting stoned to death, which is a horrible way to go, he's praying that God would forgive the people killing him. What else stands out to you about that? What what about the crowd stands out to you? They had to cover their ears um, hearing him speak just to to enable themselves to, to kill him. They had to just block try to block that out. Yeah. They they hated the preacher for doing it. I saw a quote, I don't remember who said it, he said, look, this, a good sermon will do one of two things. You'll either love the sermon or you'll hate the preacher. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it has nothing to do with the preacher himself. It's just the content. You're either going to love the content or you're going to hate the guy. Cut to the quick. Mm-hmm. The other thing that stands out to me on that is, notice this wasn't like they killed him in a rage. If they would have killed him in a rage, they would have killed him on the spot. They would have stoned him right at the pulpit. But notice, verse 58, they took him outside the city. This was a deliberate... I mean, they you have to have a lot of rage to walk three miles to kill the guy. This is some intense hatred. Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. Saul, who would later become Paul, verse, chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I wanted to point that out just so you understand that persecution is actually a benefit to the church. It was persecution that pushed the church outside of Jerusalem. Paul began his evangelistic ministry long before he became an apostle. It seems like every time something bad happens, God 
Yeah. This is God using persecution for His purposes. Acts chapter 10, you get the first Gentile converts. Chapter 10, Cornelius has a vision. And he's told in this vision, go send some men to Joppa to get a guy named Peter. That's in verse 5. In Acts 10, verses 11 through 18, Peter has a vision. You'll remember that vision, the vision of the, the blanket that comes down with all the different types of animals. And God has my favorite verse, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Bacon. <laughs> and Peter gets offended and says, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Don't ask me to eat this. And he says, look, Peter, don't call unclean what I have sanctified, what I have made clean. And the whole point of the message is don't look at the Gentiles as being unclean. The Spirit, verse 19, tells him there are three men looking for you. You need to go to them. Acts 10, verse 23, Peter goes to Caesarea with these three men. And in Acts 10, verses 30 and 34, he begins to deliver his message. Would somebody be willing to read uh, Acts 10, 44 through 48? The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water of these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And when, and he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Thank you. The very first Gentile converts. We saw in the Gospel of Luke, Luke was focusing on the Gospel going to the Gentiles. And here you find the very first mention of Gentiles being converted and becoming Christians. Without circumcision. Without circumcision. They received the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues, which was a sign then, not for today. This is also where we find the very first mention of someone being called a Christian. Acts 11, verse 26. And when they had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. By the way, it was an insult at the time. It was a pejorative. Uh, there's a inscription outside of a building in Rome of a man with the head of a donkey being crucified. And there's a, 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 a writing above it that says, Menelaus worships his God. It was an insult to the Christians. You worship a crucified Savior. And that's where the term Christian comes from. It's this idea that you worship Christ. Acts 12, verse 2, you have the first apostolic martyr. You have an apostle that's murdered. James, the brother of John. 
Acts 13, 1 through 3, you have the very first missionaries sent out. Paul and Barnabas are sent out on mission. Acts 15, you have the first church council. We kind of mentioned this earlier. The very first church council, the first debate. Acts 16, you have the very first preaching in Europe. That's Acts 16, 12, and 13. Preaching, witnessing is a huge part of this book. Um, hold your spot in, in Acts. Go back to the end of Luke real quick. Luke 24. Luke finishes his book with a statement. I'm trying to find what I'm looking for here. And I don't see it. Oh, I'm I'm looking right over it. I'm okay. Acts tw- uh, Luke 24. Uh, let's start in verse 45. Then he opened their minds, the speaking of Jesus to the disciples, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. They are what? They are witnesses. Go over to Acts chapter 1. Luke picks up on the same idea in Acts chapter 1. He told them in Luke 24, you will receive power, you are my witnesses, Acts 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. One of the major themes of the book of Luke is witnesses. You will be a witness. This was one of the standards for... um, the new apostle. By the way, a witness in in this context is someone who witnessed, was an eyewitness of the ascension. Right. Acts uh, 1, verse 22, beginning with the baptism, uh, the standard was, they had to be there from the beginning of the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. A witness sees something and then testifies about it to someone else. The apostles were witnesses to the resurrection. Acts 2, verse 32. Um, Where am I? This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Same thing in Acts 3, verse 15. Acts 5, 30 through 32. Um... The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior 
to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. We are witnesses to His life, we are witnesses to His death. Acts 10, verse 39, they are witnesses to all that Jesus did. Acts 10, verse 41, we are chosen by God to be witnesses, to testify of what Christ did. Acts 10, verse 43, he calls the prophets of the Old Testament witnesses. Witnesses to the life of Christ. Um, let's hold that idea. Go back, to, go back to Acts chapter 1. I want to show you something. I wasn't just talking about witnessing for no reason. Acts chapter 1. Verse 8 again. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. That's a promise. It's a promise that's fulfilled in the book of Acts. He's telling you what he's going to write about. And he's going to demonstrate to you that's exactly what happens. Jesus promised you will be witnesses to him in Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. If you want to see the fulfillment of that promise in Acts for Judea, read Acts 1 through 7. Let's just do a couple shots here. Chapter 2, verse 9. People from these different regions were hearing them speak in tongues, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. They heard the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 14, in Peter's first sermon. And he starts a sermon, verse 14, Men of Judea, all of you who live in Jerusalem, Chapter 8, verse 1, we looked at this earlier when Paul started his persecution. The church was scattered throughout the regions of Judea. Chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, the church is now in Judea. They did not hear, just hear about it but they actually planted churches in Judea. What about Samaria? We already looked. This is Acts 8 through 12. By the way, if you didn't notice, well, I'm not there yet. I didn't put that on there. I, I got ahead of myself. Um, Acts 8 through 12, Acts 8 verse 1, uh, the persecution sends the church into Samaria. Acts 8 verse 14, um, the word of God is in Samaria. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, um, Acts 9, verse 31, the church is present in Samaria. Uh, Acts 9, verse 31 is actually the last mention of Samaria in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 9, 31 so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Again, we see this church is in Judea and in 
Samaria. That's a fulfillment of the promise of Acts 1. The last part of Acts 1, verse 8, is to the remotest parts of the earth. It's in chapters 13 through 28. Your outline, that you, your handout, actually has Acts 13 through 28 outlined for you. Because Paul's three missionary journeys are the means by which he goes and brings the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. You guys have questions or comments here? I do. One question. And I hope it's not off the wall. But are we witnesses because the Holy Spirit is in us? Yes. Good question. Yes. Okay. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a very good witness. Neither would I. The, yeah, right? The key word is because of yeah. the Holy Spirit. Yeah. He points you to Christ. And as he points you to Christ, you lead other people to Christ. Right? right? Um, I, I just want to look at this quickly here. I want to take you through act, uh, Paul's missionary journeys. And I do have some maps to go along with this. His first missionary journey starts in Acts 13. From Acts 13, 1 through 14, 28. And you can see on your handout, you have all of this on your handout, so we're not going to go in detail here. He goes to Cyprus, to Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So it's going to be the red. And he just makes a circle and goes around. And you'll notice on most of his journeys, I think he does it on the other two as well, he, he'll go back to the churches that he's already been to. He establishes a church, and then he goes back to it to make sure it's okay. When you look at his letters, his letters are written back to the churches that he helped establish. Paul's second missionary journey starts in Acts 16. He goes to Philippi in Acts 16, Thessalonica in Acts 17, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. That's a lot of walking. I was just about to say, that's a lot of walking. That's a long way to drive. Now, you go into like 2 Corinthians 11 and you look at all the abuse Paul took physically. Scourged two times. Stoned. Beaten. And then he goes and does that. On foot. That's a long way to travel. That's covering most of the known world at the time. That's the remotest parts of the earth for them. And some say he made it out to Spain on his fourth missionary journey. That's not actually known for sure. Paul's third missionary journey he goes to Ephesus again, goes to Greece, he goes to Troas, he goes to Miletus. I've been on a ship before in the Med. They've got some nasty storms on the Med. Some of the worst weather that I've ever seen was in the Med. And if you guys remember the story, he's kind of hopping on the coast. 
Why is he hopping on the coast? He's hitting weather. He's traveling all over the known world, and he eventually, his last trip is out to Rome, where he preaches at the end of Acts 28. And he preaches to Rome. He leaves there. It's believed he goes down to Crete, because he writes a letter to Titus. After he leaves Crete, he writes the book of Titus. And it's believed he may have made it out to Spain on his fourth missionary journey. At some point, he's arrested again and taken back to Rome, where he writes 2 Timothy. I don't know how many how long that took him. Yeah. It's a long way to travel. Especially if you're doing that on foot. You say, well, he may have ridden a camel. I don't think that really helps. <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't sound like a very fun ride. That's a long way to go. And there's a lot of logistics, and you're in, you're on main roads, there are robberies, and everything. I mean, this is not a simple journey by any means. Yeah. So the promise made in Acts one fulfilled, completed to the remotest parts of the world. Now, I had talked earlier about the apostles. There's one last thing I want to mention. We have roughly five, six minutes here. There's a switch. I told you that the last mention of the apostles is in Acts 16. So who's leading the church after that? If the apostles are gone... It has to be the elders of the churches. It has to be the elders. I want to show you that real quick. Acts 11... Verse 30. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. They were sending a collection to the churches. And so they sent Paul and Barnabas to the elders. Acts 14, verse 23. We see that they're appointing elders in every single church. Acts 14, verse 23, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commanded them, commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Every church received a group of elders. More than one. In every single church. Acts 15, we had looked at this earlier. This is the Jerusalem Council. Paul and Barnabas go to the council Acts 15, verse 2, and they had great dissensions and debate among them. Uh, with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Apostles and elders. Acts 15, verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to look into the matter. As far as church function is concerned, the elders and the apostles are acting together, jointly. Acts 15, 22, they send a letter. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men 
of the brethren, and they sent this letter to by them. The answer to the question was given by the apostles and the elders. Acts 16, verse 4, I had mentioned this earlier, this is the last mention of the apostles in the book of Acts. Every other mention here is from here on out is just going to be a mention of Paul. There's no more mentioning of the apostles. The apostles fade out of view. I'm not saying the apostles are dead. I didn't say they all died. They're still alive. Luke just doesn't mention them anymore. They have faded into the church, and they're just functioning within the church, and they're not a center of attention anymore. And the elders are now being viewed as the leaders of the local churches. Acts 20, verse 17, Paul meets with the elders of the church of Ephesus. These elders are already functioning as the overseers of the church in Ephesus. And Paul meets with them, and he meets with them as the overseers of that church. Acts 21, verse 18, Paul meets with the elders in Jerusalem. And again, there's no mention of the apostles. The apostles have passed the reins on to the elders, and the elders are now overseeing these individual churches. I'll have you note, there's no pope. Where does Timothy and Titus fall in after this? Titus would be on his fourth missionary journey, so Titus is going to be after the book of Acts. Paul's in prison in Acts 28. He's released, and at some point he goes on his fourth missionary journey. We're not exactly sure when he does that. Or at least I'm not exactly sure. Some other people may know. Um, some point on his fourth missionary journey, he's arrested again. Well, let me back up. On his fourth missionary journey, he, go to, he goes to Crete. He establishes a church in Crete. He leaves Titus behind. And as he's leaving Crete, he writes a letter back to Titus. And that's the book of Titus. Second Timothy is written during his final imprisonment in Rome when he was arrested sometime during his fourth missionary journey. And then he's executed around 68 AD by Nero. So, questions? I think it's probably interesting that, that there was so much forethought in all about God's work that he puts elders instead of, like you just said, Pope. Mm -hmm. The Pope is almost revered as a god and there's only one God. Yeah. yeah the, the whole idea of the papacy is really ahistorical. One, because if you read the book of Acts, it's individual elder, groups of elders governing the individual churches. Each church has a group of elders governing it. And then you get into the early church, and I mentioned Irenaeus earlier. Irenaeus came up with this idea. It's a big fancy word called monoepiscopacy. It just means that one guy should be the ruler of the individual church. And the early church rejected it. Do you know why they rejected it? Because they thought one guy leading one local church was a usurpation of the authority of Christ. It wasn't until a hundred years later or so at the end of the third century, that they began to accept this idea. Well, it was never even in 
example of what Christ did. Christ picked 12. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't until 100 years later that people started accepting the idea that one guy could lead the local church and be the, the head over the local church by himself, which is where a lot of Baptist churches get their ecclesiology day, where you have one pastor leading the church and then you have everyone below him. But then, if you consider that, then you have to step over and look at Roman Catholicism that says well, there's one guy who's leading the universal church, and this is what the apostles established. That's not what we see in the book of Acts. That's nowhere close. All right. Any other questions, comments? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Churches, so, anyway, where does he fit into this? I'm going to call it power structure, and no, power structure is probably not the best way of phrasing it. But like, how does like where does he get the authority mm-hmm. to then maybe redirect them when they've already um, just decided who their elders are? Does that make sense? It does. It does. Um, that's a good question, and I don't know that I have a great answer for it. But the the best answer I can give you is the apostles had a unique position in the early church. Um, once he established the church and they had appointed elders, he was still there. Um, 1 Peter 5 is actually a good place to look at. Uh, 1 Peter 5, I think, gives us the best answer to your question. Because Peter, who's an apostle like Paul, writes to the church. 1 Peter 5, verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. So they establish these churches, they have elders in those churches, and the apostles, Peter at least, views himself as a fellow elder. And so he meets with the, Paul meets with the church at Ephesus. He probably instructs those elders on how to behave, what to do, what not to do. He wrote to the church at Corinth, I would imagine, when he wrote his rebuke in 1 Corinthians. He was addressing that primarily to the elders and saying, get, get that guy out of your midst. And so... My read of that would be he's functioning as an elder, but he's an apostle, so it's a little... It has a little bit more weight when well, the apostle does it. I know we're over time, but I got one more question. Didn't the apostles go out in groups of two anyhow? That was uh, when Jesus sent them out, yes. Yeah, so there you had two right there. There's the yeah. plurality. Yeah. And then so. they're calling themselves elders. There's the, there's the progression, too. Mm-hmm. And then he says, well, have elders and deacons. There's the progression to Titus and Timothy. Yep. Okay. Does that answer your question? Does that help? Kind of. But, I mean, who, who then helps keep them in line? What knows? Oh, the Holy you know, Spirit. Who keeps the apostles in line? No. Or the churches? Elders. Yeah. How do you, you know, yeah. uh, like the accountability? Like well, that, that's addressed in Timothy and no. that That's one of the reasons for the plurality. There, the, there's more than one elder there. If it's just one guy, you have that problem. Who keeps him in check? But if you have more than one elder, the elders hold themselves accountable and they hold each other accountable. And, and, and the people in the church hold the elders because they can have two or more bring charges against them. Yeah. Yeah, they, they probably want more than they want to discuss those out and and talk about them. Um, not all the councils are created equal. So, um, actually, 
Pastor Michael is teaching on the councils today. So if you want to know more about the councils, pull up the audio from that today when the, later this week when it's posted and uh, listen to those. That'll be an interesting topic. But yes. Okay, we are over time. Let me pray and we'll, we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have preserved the history of the early church. We thank you for the work that your spirit was doing uh, in the early church and that you were doing that through men, that uh, you would give men, that you would give sinful men uh, the opportunity to be involved in such great and fantastic work. It's just so humbling. And we thank you so much for it. And we ask that you would bless our time of worship this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.